Listen up, sinners. This is Kyle from Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. We're going to be honest with you. We're fully aware you're filthy, immoral deviants, which is why we're offering a new service to our listeners. Indulgences. So here's how it works. You give us money, you don't burn an internal hellfire. Now, for tax purposes, we need to be a little creative with the transaction. So visit patreon.com slash trrpod and subscribe for as little as a dollar a month and know you'll still find the pearly gates. Guess you'll also get bonus content like early episode access and roundtable conversations, but you're monsters. You know you need this. like to begin our episode today by announcing the launch of our new Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades digital trading cards. NFTs, baby. They're going to be big. For only, big. For only $99 a piece, you can enjoy exclusive online images of Chris Miller drinking an icy light in a shirt you can see his nipples through. Kyle Graper I'm weeping on... i that shirt right now. Kyle Graper weeping on the toilet. Rob <sighs> North aggressively approaching the back end of a sheep. Mike Lernette doing a bong hit dressed as Father Guido Sarducci. <laughs> Keith Volhop scuba diving in a coral reef in a full wedding gown. And Vinny the dog shitting at a yard while looking at you directly in the eye. Email for details. Ninety nine, ninety nine, Limited to 455000 Yes. So by now they're going to sell off. <laughs> Digital trading cards. Like what a novel idea we just came up with. The right good news now. is we could take a lot of inspiration from from recent events and we can make ourselves look really in shape. Oh, you got to you got to get slim. You got to so get we, slim. We may be able to see your nipples through that shirt, but they are going to be perky. Oh yeah. Like great nipples, Rob. And listeners at home. It's <laughs> it's a shame it's not a visual medium. We'll 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 have to get a we'll have to get a photo for the the social media. And so I can't I can't post nipples on Instagram. Or can I? Did they relax that? No, you're fine. You can. You can now. You're fine. You don't have you the could. evil nipples. Oh, I can post boy nipples. Or you, yeah. Or you can just go with raisins on a biscuit. I could do that too. Yeah, yeah boy nipples. That's the good kind, according to the internet, anyway. Jesus and Christ. also me. <laughs> I maybe man. I do. Of all the things or I expected to hear in our episode tonight, the phrase "raisins on a biscuit" was not. <laughs> <laughs> where I, I thought I was going to be... I will say, though, something I did expect... It's the expect, holiday season. Yeah. Although something I did expect to hear was, Welcome to Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades, everybody. I'm Rob North. I am your co-host, Chris Miller. I am Kyle Graper. And we'd like to welcome back to the show the auxiliary to our legion, the star of our Rasputin series, the egg in our nog, our good friend Keith Volhop of the Thrifty Whiskey YouTube channel, or as we were about to call you, Keith Whiskey of Thrifty Volhop. <laughs> Um, do you want to explain the Keith Whiskey thing? Because it is kind do. of a dope name. <laughs> um, yeah, so my uh, boss got me a, uh, a gift certificate for one of the places I frequent, uh, Butler Cigars. And uh, her husband was purchasing the gift certificate. The guy at the counter didn't know my last name, so he just put Keith Whiskey on it <laughs> because he knows I do the whiskey YouTube channels. And I've definitely named one of my Fallout New Vegas characters Keith Whiskey. <laughs> like, definitely have. I, I like the name, honestly. Yeah, it's definitely Keith Whiskey out there finding out what to do with that platinum chip. <laughs> That's going to be my uh, one, one of one signed NFTs. 
Nice. Mm, very yeah, nice. Yeah. Very nice. So today we are continuing uh, with the second half of our series. Beat that one, Trump. <laughs> on, the revol- <laughs> on the revolt of Queen Boudicca. So in the first half of our story of the famed Iron Age British Queen of the Achaene, we explored some of the background of the Roman conquest of Britain and just how complicated it was and how long and how many tries it actually took. Now, casting ourselves back to 60 AD, we heard the tale of a woman of rank and privilege whose people had learned to coexist with the Romans as a sort of small client state, benefiting financially and securing peace until it was all taken away by the avarice and arrogance of the Romans, or more specifically, one Roman in particular. Wronged and dishonored, having watched her two daughters face the unbearable, we learned exactly why you never take the wrong woman past the breaking point. Rallying her people and their allies, all sick of the Roman shit, to her banner, Boudicca became a rampage that shocked the Roman world and left the city of Camelodunum, a shining example of imperial glory, nothing more than a pile of ash and corpses. But Camelodunum was just the first strike in what would be more, uh, a campaign of terror and vengeance. That... That city burned so hot that the clay is still red. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But well, they, I mean, they, they literally fired it as if yeah. in a kiln. Yeah, right. It became yeah. a city-sized pottery. Kiln. Yeah, so that's where what? Yeah, the 19, acreage where the city. Nineteen hundred years later. Yeah, the the entire city is now just a giant dish. It's a giant pottery tray. That's mm-hmm. the ground that this city used to sit on. Today, we'll explore what happened when Boudicca and her people really declared war on Rome in earnest, and what happened when both sides finally met in savage combat, exploring just how those two sides matched up. We'll also see why the Romans were re- really were not ready for Boudicca's campaign of revenge, how one of the world's great cities almost didn't happen, and how Boudicca met her eventual destiny and the legacy she left to the centuries beyond. So to give honor to our sources once again, you can hear more about these in the first episode. We have two modern sources. We have Boudicca, the Iron Age Warrior Queen by Drs. Richard Hengley and Christina Unwin. We also have Boudicca and the British Revolt Against Rome by Dr. Graham Webster. And then, of course, we have our classical sources, the ones that come from Roman writers writing after the fact, but much closer to the actual events. We have the writings of Tacitus, particularly from 98 AD's Agricola and 110 AD's Annals. We have the lives eh, of the season. <laughs> Nailed it, dude. Good one, Kyle. <laughs> I'm on like two and a half hours of sleep. That's fine. So this is just the start. We have... He nailed the anal. <laughs> Doesn't he always? <laughs> Good one, Keith. <laughs> I... Anyway... We have The Lives of the Caesars by Suetonius, written around 121 AD, and we have Cassius Dio's History of the Roman Empire, written in 235 AD, or completed in 235 AD, because it took him, what was it, two decades to write the whole damn thing, because it was 80 volumes? Well, a lot happened. That might be how long it takes me to write my next series. Kyle, we don't have that long. That's fair. (laughs) That's fair. Um, But before we get into the the story, Keith, you're you're joining us for part two here. Um, In the events leading up to the burning, and including the burning of Camelodunum, you've done some research on... Boudicca, what were the parts of the early part of that story that you've kind of found really remarkable that you want to that you may want to comment on before we actually get into part two? So uh, when the city burned, uh, they found the temple of Claudius and uh, actually decapitated his statue and threw his threw the head of his statue into the river. And I mean, it makes a hell of a sacrifice to the river gods. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, and uh, they well, they probably didn't care for them. No, <laughs> that, like, no, especially not... the river gods. Like no, but they're used to like incense and swords and like slaughtered chickens and stuff like that. And here comes a three foot tall golden head. Well, I mean, right. they, they were bitter. So I, I I didn't know this for the first episode, but I yeah. apparently they were required each year to come to the temple to pay fealty to him directly, mm-hmm. as if it were their own religion, as part of their agreement with the empire. Right. So they didn't. They really didn't like this thing. Yeah, it just became another revenue stream for the Romans. And and part of Celtic warmongering was to decapitate your enemies when you found their bodies fallen in the field. So that was a statement on that end. Make like well. a hell of a centerpiece of the dinner table. Just saying. Yeah, it was. I mean, one, it was a, a cool trophy because they were quite literally like putting tar dipped heads on pikes. It's not mm-hmm. just like a Hollywood invention. Um. It was a great way to prove that they were dead. Like it's, it's pretty finite. Like it's, yeah. it, you don't really, you can't really check a pulse. Whatever you can just see all the sweet middles. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you you actually mentioned something about the head that we forgot to include last week, and that it was thrown in the river and recently discovered. Yeah, it was found and is on display at, I believe, the British Museum. Yeah. Well, everything is on display at the British Museum. And not just everything British. <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah. I feel like every great historical item we've been missing for millennia, we're just going to find in a bog in Britain at some point. I, I, got to, I got to admit, I really do think it's a little tacky for the, the British Museum to have that new advertising banner that just says possession is nine-tenths of the law. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a little bit... Uh. So, uh, so what my, you're my saying sister, is uh, that scene at the end of the movie where they're pushing the crate with the ark in it through the warehouse <laughs> what was actually the British Museum. Top men. <laughs> uh, my sister was recently in Egypt, and I know that uh, other people have told this story, but like tour guides, or particularly taxi drivers, will be like, oh, do you know why the pyramids are where they are? And everybody's like, well, no, you just assume, like, oh, like something with the sun or something. It's, oh, because they're too big for the British to take back to the museum. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they tried. Just some, just some dude with the Sphinx's nose strapped to his back. <laughs> Just walking back to Alexandria to catch a boat back to Portsmouth. Giza is three feet closer to London than when it started. But so <laughs> they're just getting saying. There. They're getting there. Every time British people show up in Egypt, they all get the one side of the pyramids and push. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, gentlemen, any other points of order before we move on to the story of the second half of Boudicca's Revolt? Fire away. The eyes have it. So after the sacking and burning of Camelodunum and the massacre of its population, Cadus Decianus was having a bit of an oh-shit moment. The Roman administrator, who, let's remind ourselves, had been the one to arrange the nullifying of the agreement between the Emperor Nero and Boudicca's late husband, Persutigus, and had been the one responsible for the gross injustices against Boudicca and her daughters, had done a bit of an oopsie in doing so, and as a result had unleashed tens of thousands of pissed-off British warriors into the vulnerable backfield of Roman Britain. See, there were still significant legionary forces in the province, but they were mostly away to the west, trying to put the final unified resistance in southern Britain down as they laid siege to the island of Anglesey, just off of what's now Wales, in order to defeat the spiritual heads of British resistance, the priestly class known as the Druids. And the only other significant force was further to the north, garrisoning an area that was far less pacified and keeping an eye on the Scottish Scottish people known as the Painted Ones. Could you imagine trying to... Being a Roman trying to negotiate with the Welsh. I, with Welsh druids? Yeah. I mean, the druids are scary. The Welsh are just 
incoherent. Yeah. It made the Romans incredibly uncomfortable that the, particularly the, the Druids, um, like a field in combat used women. And it, they had no idea how to respond to this. It made them incredibly uncomfortable, especially somebody like Cassius Dio. Yeah. Who, whatever reading this, uh, not a feminist. Nope. Not much of a feminist. No, who'd have thunk it, huh? <laughs> well, and, it, it, on, yeah, you, the still only other... that, you still see that today to some extent. The mm-hmm. Kurds very specifically put together uh, all women units mm-hmm. uh, just part of the you YPG. Know, a few years yep. ago. On and the ISIS did side, not know how to handle that. Mm-mm. And although I got to say it, I, I hate to make this comparison, but a bunch of Druids leading a military force against the Romans, the closest modern comparison we really have. Maybe that. Was the Islamic State. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maybe that. Although well, that buffalo the- headdress guy from the insurrection. <laughs> <laughs> and here I was thinking the great American man bison was extinct. Nature is healing. There's an NFT for that, too. <laughs> uh, on the flip side, Kyle, can you imagine being a Welshman trying to negotiate with somebody speaking Latin? Um, yeah, that's, equal- fair. <laughs> that's fair. You know how you, you, know, you, know how you when you're trying to find out directions, you turn your radio down? Because you think it'll make you find your destination better? Yeah, so you can see better. Yeah. Well, Welshman has, well, Welshman has to re- remove himself from the sheep so he can better understand the, uh, <laughs> the other guy's language. The Welsh can't get podcast, right? Uh, no, they okay. just got the wheel and fire, so we're good. <laughs> okay, good. So, yeah, they're, they're all just singing in coal mines right now. We don't yeah. have to worry. They don't have time for podcasts. Number eight in Estonia, <laughs> number 10,000 in Wales. If, if Pierce Last. Brosnan's listening yeah. and upset, I will personally raise you an from, apology. He's letter. from Northern Ireland. Is he? I thought yeah. he was Welsh. Nope. Why did I think he was Welsh? Wasn't one of them Welsh? Yes. I don't remember which one it was. Lazenby? No, Lazenby was Lazenby's Australian. 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 Anyway, we're getting we're Whatever. getting off track here. So, Cadus Decianus reacted to the sacking of Camelo Dunham in pretty much the way you'd expect him to. He fled with his belongings and household and took shift to Gaul, where he began to write the emperor to inform him that there was a bit of a problem with the Acani and the Trinovantes, that they were becoming a little restless and might have lightly damaged one of the emperor's cities. Now, in the surviving correspondence, Cadus Decianus makes no mention of why the Acanian Trinovantes were so pissed off or what had happened to set them off, the destruction of Camelodunum, and he certainly doesn't make any mention of the role he played in those events, basically listing their reason for revolting as... <laughs> barbarians. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it really does read like that. It's just like, but that's pretty much. It is how, in their barbarian nature, I believe, was one of the that's phrases. Kind of used. how it went with all the enemies of Rome. Yeah, they were yeah. all barbarians. Yep, even I the mean, Greeks were considered to be barbarians. Correct by the Romans. They just like, and the Greeks were the ones who created the name barbarian. <laughs> but I mean, think of like, like the Visigoths. Yeah. By the end of it, all of the, all of the Goth military commanders were Roman. Yeah, all of them. Yeah, <laughs> the Goths were more Christianized than the Roman Empire. Right. Now it's. I mean. So, messages back from Rome offered to send reinforcements from the continent to aid in putting the rebellion down, and Decianus declined, probably trying to minimize the whole thing and thinking that he could style this all out and figure out a solution before it became a really big problem. After this, Decianus sort of fades away into history. His name pops up in records of his definitely being fired after this whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he he, he, he yeah, got his sandwiches out. and a road map. Um, but one thing... Uh, but after that, his name never really pops up again. But one thing was clear. It wasn't going to be Roman administrators that could put an end to this whole mess. It was the Roman army. Now, the Roman legions are far and away the most famous and overall su- successful military force of the ancient world. Demonstrated not just through the lasting, their lasting imagery, 
but also through the extent of Rome's borders, the longevity of the empire, and the roads and forts that still cover the landscape of Europe and North Africa today. So, as these two forces are about to come together in open battle, I want to take a little time, as we so often do in these episodes, to provide some context and see how these two foes stack up against each other. First, let's look at the style of warfare they're used to fighting. Now, the Roman legions are a field force, not normally used for security or garrison purposes unless they're in something of a hot zone. While they could be in large fortified camps for extended periods, you're not going to find Roman legionaries in a large fort or along Hadrian's Wall or something like that. That was a job for auxiliaries and territorials. The legion's job was to go find the enemy, destroy the enemy in large-scale set-piece battles, and thereby protect the empire from invasion or expand its holdings. The experience of the Roman soldier came through long careers of training, disciplined camp life, and the occasional massive scrum in a field somewhere against a screaming horde of people trying to kill them in all sorts of excruciating ways. Now, the soldiers that made up these legions were recruited from all across the empire, purposefully, as the Romans believed that diffusing people from different areas across the empire lessened the likelihood of regional rebellions. Mm -hmm. So you might have a legion fighting in Syria that's mostly made up of people from the Balkans, or a legion in Britain that's mostly from the Iberian Peninsula. Meanwhile, the Britain's warrior class generally cut their teeth as raiders, as did most of the quote-unquote barbarian cultures of Northwest Europe. There's very little anthropological or archaeological evidence that large-scale set-piece battles happened between the British tribes. Instead, if a state of conflict existed, it was generally played out either through bands of warriors launching raids against rival settlements to capture slaves, livestock, supplies, or treasure, or with two probably pretty small war bands, normally a leader's retinue of loyal followers, coming together in smaller-scale combat that was almost ritualistic in how it was played out and how the victors were recognized. We mentioned that with the taking of heads and such. And this sort of combat could happen between the tribes or within them. So while it was generally smaller scale, it was likely a lot more frequent. It also makes sense. Like, they, they probably did not have the infrastructure to have a standing army. No. Like, whenever you think about, like, the barbarian hordes, they're usually armed with tools. Yeah, they're generally more right. citizen levies. It's, I think of... As know, were most of the armies in the ancient world. Right. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Romans like, were very unique in the fact that they had a professional army. Yeah, correct. Most yeah. Greek hoplites were citizen levies. Um, I mean, the, look the Carthaginians the, were mostly militias. The, the Danes and the Saxons. The Saxons had swords and shields. The Danes, has, they had axes. Why? Because they used axes at home. Like, they mm-hmm. used them to fell trees. Like, they, yeah. they didn't have... Well, not all of them. But eventually, like, you would arm yourself. But you had at hand what you had. Like, pitchforks in combat, not uncommon. For hmm. Didn't really go away until about the 1600s. Right. Yeah. yeah. It was more of a protecting your village or just attacking the next your next-door neighbors. But even and, even in, like, feudal Japan, the, the tool, like, the, the weapons that, like, ninja and samurai would carry were refined versions of farm implements. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Most of the weapons carried by the Ashigaru, the the, mm-hmm. the peasant levies. Yep. Mm-hmm. It was quite illegal to have weapons of war for most of the population. Oh, yeah, yeah, for a very long time. And uh, then there were the Romans. They did things a little differently. Yes. So, they, also, you're not yeah. you're not doing a lot of farming with like a pilum and. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> then there's the way these two forces were organized. For the Romans, legionary organization was very very regimented. If you'll pardon the pun. Uh, much as anyone in this room with army experience would know, modern militaries are organized to smaller units that make up progressively larger bodies of troops. Twelve men to a squad, three squads to a platoon, three platoons make a company, three companies make a battalion, and so on and so on. The Roman legions were no different. 
The Roman legions were formed mostly around infantry, and the base unit was the squad of eight men, or the contubernium, which literally means in a tent together. I, I, that's the exact translation, because it was eight guys that would all live in one eight single eight-man tent. Right. Yeah. It made a lot of sense. So ten of these, 80 men, made up the century, roughly the equivalent of a company. Six centuries made up the battalion equivalent, known as a cohort, 480 men strong. A legion contained ten cohorts, although the first of these was always a reinforced unit known as a cohort primus with 800 men meant to act as a strong center for the legion. This meant that every legion was to have, at least on paper, 5,120 infantrymen exactly. Hmm. Now, in addition, and, each... But that does not include their commanders. Does not include commanders no, or officers your, or anything like got, that. Yeah, you have your squad of mm-hmm. eight, three squads. Yeah. Every century would have a centurion, a signifer, right. three officers for every century, something like that. And, and each larger like, unit, as much have, as modern militaries do today, you have your battalion-level staff, brigade-level staff. Right. Etc. So, uh, in addition, each legion would also have a small cavalry element of 120 horsemen attached to it, as well as a significant artillery train. This was made up of 60 scorpions, small pieces that resembled a, basically a really big crossbow, meant to launch small stones or yard-long arrows at the enemy, and 10 onagers, which were basically the classic catapult, launching heavy stones or pots of burning pitch. The each- wild thing is, like, the scorpion was such a massive crossbow and the onager was such a tiny catapult mm-hmm. they're little there's uh shit they there used to be a guy that um periodically he would do demonstrations at the fort pitt museum i don't know why <laughs> but uh he would do them there uh he was the like world atlatl throwing champion <laughs> which is cool. uh, an atlatl is just like uh it's like a three foot stick with a hook on the end you knock that into an arrow and it whenever you throw it like you would a football it increases your range like eightfold because yeah. it, <laughs> it essentially adds about three feet to your but arm he, as a fulcrum yeah he is a like a historical weapons recreationist and uh he has a full-size onager it's like three feet long it's tiny it's hilarious <laughs> yeah it's so yeah but, but a scorpion is like eight feet across they're <laughs> monstrous like each each arm is like four feet yeah which and he also made which very, how very is this powerful. legal <laughs> i i don't know <laughs> I mean, and here you were getting yelled at by the, by the, what was it, the police or the Coast Guard for firing off muskets off the front of the that was the Coast Guard, Gateway yes. Clipper. Yeah. yeah, no, it wasn't the Gateway Clipper. It was the like the other boat. Oh right, it was like the the boatier looking boat. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Coast Guard Coast Guard pulled us over for a uh, an album release party for the Bloody Seamen, who uh, were kind enough to give us some music for our intro and outro. Yep. Now, each legion would also be accompanied by various auxiliary units that conclude, that could include anything from archers to slingers to light cavalry. Uh, as an aside, Chris, I followed up on our discussion from the last episode. Turns out we were both right. Yeah, yeah. It was, so, it's yeah, about, the Romans uh, did cavalry. make use of chariots in their armies in this period, usually in the form of auxiliaries, mm-hmm. but they weren't using them in Britain or Northwest Europe. Okay. They considered the ground to be too broken... Too muddy. They're also they're, too many stone walls, too many streams that make chariots hard to use in open fields. It makes, like if you think of where yeah. they use chariots, and this is not just the Romans, but pretty much everybody else, uh, very very wide open, mm-hmm. very arid, but it, where it would make sense to have these things. Yeah. But uh, and also, yeah, it's it's wild to me that the Romans is is like feared as their uh, cavalry was. They just really didn't use them. No. Everybody else did, but, but they just really didn't. But I mean, their they, cavalry was generally. 
heavy cavalry. That's true. Their legions cavalry was heavy cavalry. Yeah. They'd have a lot of light cavalry auxiliaries, good for scouting, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, um, but it was mostly for, like, messengers and stuff. Yeah. And sometimes it, you would put bowmen on them, but they would usually mm-hmm. be, like, to to defend somebody important. Like, if Caesar was leading the legions that time, you would put cavalry out there to make sure yeah, nobody that becomes would give his bodyguard. Him. Right, yep. pretty much. Well, you know, you also got to take in the, the terrain that they're in. So, um, you come in through Europe northwards, it's all pretty much wooded. You're not going to be able to use a chariot there. You get into Britain, it's all muddy bogs. You're not going to be able to use a chariot there without sinking for, unless you got a four-wheel drive. Well, and here's the thing about Britain. Britain at this point was one of the highly, most highly agriculturally developed areas of the world. So you have a lot of woods, but the fields you have are often broken up by stone walls, by ditches, stuff like that that make chariots hard to use. Same goes for northern France. Northern Gaul, excuse me. Uh, so chariots were normally used out in the Middle East, or they were used in, like, hung- Hungary, Bulgaria area now against sort of like the steppe tribes, where you could actually take a chariot for miles and miles and miles, and you're not going to hit anything but grass. So, back to the legions. In 60 AD, there were three whole legions and parts of a fourth operating in Britain, and there were 26 in the empire as a whole, along with hundreds of thousands of auxiliaries and the limitane, or the garrison troops. The Britons, on the other hand, operated in a far less organized manner. Small bands would show up under the leadership of their village headman or chieftain, band together with the other bands from villages in the area, and then congregate as a force with the rest of the fighters from their tribe, and then, in the case of Boudicca and her rebellion, with the forces of other tribes. There was no evidence of preset uh, organization or dedicated unit numbers or anything like that. It was simply how many people they thought they needed for the job at hand, or they could compel to show up, or how many people simply wanted to be there. So when we refer to Boudicca's forces as a horde, that's really what they were. Then there was the equipment, and I want to start with the Britons here. The average British warrior, based mostly upon grave good finds, would go into a battle with a variety of spears, javelins, axes, or long swords known as the spatha, meant for wide slashing attacks. Now, weapons were status symbols, often fairly family heirlooms, and the Britons were phenomenal ironworkers and smiths, capable of creating beautiful weapons that were as much a piece of art as they were a tool for killing. Historians of the period also made mention of the occasional use of archers or slingers, able to launch a stone several hundred yards with more than enough power to kill a man if they hit him in the right place, deriving that power from whirling that sling around them around their head many times before releasing it. They would use uh, commonly use large round shields, but that was often the only protection they would have, as armor was seemingly fairly rare among the Celtic warrior class, often limited only to hardened leather or anything... Uh, if anything was worn, or on occasion, a chainmail shirt or vest would be worn by the highest ranking of the social elite. Now, for the Roman soldiery, things were much more standardized. The weapons of the Roman legionaries were a short stabbing sword with a wide blade a little under two feet long called a gladius, and you had the pilum, a type of javelin that was only about, where only about half the length was a wooden handle, the other half a long, slim iron head, essentially just a giant spike, with a narrow point that was intended not only to pierce shields and armor, but, in the event that the enemy wasn't killed or wounded, to stick into the shield and bend under its own weight, requiring the enemy soldier to either attempt to fight in a compromised way with his heavy, awkward weight on his shield, or to throw the shield away, rendering him more vulnerable. (laughs) Now, auxiliaries could have just about any form of weapon you can imagine, based upon where they were from and the role they were recruited to fulfill. The Roman soldier was protected by a large curved shield called the scutum, Rectangular in shape and meant not just, to co- not just to cover the man from neck to knee, but also to easily overlap or interlock with the shields of other legionaries. Allowing... And because they were shaped 
because they would kind of wrap around your body. They were uh, like crescent shaped. Uh, in combat, you could use them to scoop somebody and pull them into your gladius. <laughs> yeah. Which, good God, yeah, that's would nasty. that be unpleasant? Because it, it covers you from about your sternum to about mid-shin. Yeah. It would also cover you if you didn't want it. But like, oh, no. Whenever they were pulling you in, it would you cover, don't back away from it. It would cover us from sternum to mid-shin. Yeah, they were, your average large. Roman legionary was five foot four. Yeah, they were so they not, were meant to care, cover him from neck to, to knee. So, uh, and they're also meant to easily overlap or interlock with the shields of other legionaries, allowing them to do those special formations that you'll see, like the Testudo and mm-hmm. things like that. Uh, the, the Roman soldier was also protected by armor, which came either in the form of the Lorica Segmentata, which is long overlapping metal plates over a backing of leather that covered the torso, shoulders, and upper arms, or the Lorica Hamada, a sort of thick chainmail over leather that offers the same coverage, as well as elaborate helmets, it, the heavy elaborate helmets with neck and cheek guards. And then the way they were equipped also played into the fighting styles of each force. The Roman legions were trained to fight in close order, tightly packed together so that their large shields offered mutual support and the enemy could not get in. They'd move slowly and deliberately across the battlefield, waiting for the enemy to crash up against them, and then using their short gladiosaurs to either stab up into the gut or down into the vulnerable head and neck. With the rear ranks, throwing the pilum and their artillery offering supporting fire, grinding the enemy down with a slowly moving Cuisinart of strong, stocky <laughs> men, pushing and stabbing, pushing and stabbing, the fallen's places in the ranks being immediately filled while the cavalry harassed the enemy's flanks or drove off their missile troops. Now, standards, drums, and large trumpets allowed orders to be passed through visual and auditory means, and the officers rode on horseback so as to be able to move about quickly and dispense orders. whole thing was meant to be precise, ordered, and reliant upon training, experience, and the superiority of arms and tactics. Now, for the Britons, the focus was more on the valor and skill of the individual fighter. And they were, on average, quite a bit taller than the Romans, and uh, with weapons of a much greater reach, and they were trained to fight other individuals with great skill and maneuverability, rather than embracing the tactics of mutual support. While it was common for Celtic war leaders to fight on foot or on horseback, the Britons specifically did things a little differently. Their elites rode chariots into battle which, while they were quite a bit smaller and a little more ramshackle than what you would have seen in the Circus Maximus, it, let me put it this way. Kyle so, had a pretty good way of describing it. Yeah. They're almost like armored skateboards. Yeah. Really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> armored is generous. Oh, um, well, so I, there, there was a British chariot that they found almost perfectly preserved in a peat bog just outside Stirling, Scotland in the 1980s. And they reassembled it, and it's now, I think it's either in the British Museum or in the National Museum of Scotland. <laughs> it's the British Museum again. <laughs> and uh, I've stood three feet, I've stood three feet from this thing. It was in the National, I think it was on loan to the National Museum of Scotland at this time. And it, let me put it this way. It doesn't look super, super impressive, but the idea of a six-foot-tall Briton on top of it, painted blue, waving a spear and screaming like a maniac, I don't know, man. Hand-to-hand combat's going to be hard. With all that pee that'd be sloshing around in my trousers. <laughs> I it, And speaking of screaming and being painted blue, there was a standard tactic for the Britons to cover themselves in pigments made from woad, a blue plant dye, and scream and chant and yell to intimidate their foes before unleashing a breakneck charge meant to smash enemy formations apart so that the individual speed and skill of the lightly armored warrior could be best put to use. Uh, there's also a contingent of the Britons who went into battle completely nude, except for their shoes and sword belts, working themselves into a battle frenzy, not unlike the berserkers of Viking legend. And I'm guessing that watching a blue-tinted maniac charging at you 
just screaming with his balls full out, slapping against his own thighs, has to give you a moment of, how did I end up here? So that's you, where James Cameron got his uh, inspiration. Oh Correct, the Na'vi. The prequel series. They just, yeah, it was an NC-17, so he had to cover the balls. Yeah. yeah. Uh, frontal. Tell you what, PG, I saw, saw it last night, Blue Pocahontas 2. You get some nipple. What? Yep. I thought they like made sure there was no nipple there's, on, there's the, some on nipple. the last ones. It's a raisin on a blue biscuit. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> so we're talking about twice. the good nipples. Twice. Anyway. So overall, based on equipment, style, training, I'm going to give it to the Britons for a one-on-one basis. The Romans on an equal numbers facing off basis. The, the strength of the Roman legions was not necessarily the individual. No. It didn't hurt. But the fact was, they were completely overwhelming, and they're one of the most disciplined fighting forces in history. Like yeah. that's not just, not just Iron Age, Bronze Age. Like this yeah. was of all time. So, but if there's an uneven numbers in favor of the Britons, that's going to depend. I think it's going to depend on who's in charge, what sort of terrain and conditions they're fighting in, and who has the initiative. Yeah, location is going to be super important here. And this is all going to be put to the test when Rome launched their first large-scale military response to Boudicca's rebellion. Sent to reinforce Camelodunum, but not knowing that it was way too late for such efforts, six cohorts, around 3,000 men of the 9th Legion Hispania, one of the best-trained and experienced legions in the Roman army at this point, were making their way towards Boudicca's position under the leadership of their general, Quintus Petilius Carialis. Now, hoping to strike at the interior of the rebel forces and taking their baggage train and rounding up all the non-combatants, which Carialis hoped would suck the air out of the revolt once all the kids and old folks had been taken into slavery, the legionaries were on the quick march in column, moving down the new road system they'd spent years constructing through the British wilderness. So they took all the headache population off their hands for them. <laughs> well, I'm not saying that Cariolis had the right idea. <laughs> I'm just telling you what he was thinking. Now, they moved too quickly. Spread out in column, they were suddenly attacked from the flank by screaming waves of Britons who intended to overwhelm them before they could get into formation. However, Carialis was a talented commander, and his men held their nerve, managing to turn and form a shield wall against the Britons, attacking them from the side. Then the next wave of Britons hit them from the other direction. And remind, like this is a reminder from the from the last episode. The Iceni and the Trinovantes in, in Camaldunum numbered about one hundred and twenty thousand in total fighters. Yeah. But that's that's there's a lot debate of over people. that. And, but, and fighters yeah. weren't limited to. Elderly, young, old, like it didn't matter. Like if if you wanted to fight, you fought. Yeah, it's basically whoever was willing to pick up a weapon. Right, right. Which is another thing that kind of drove the Romans nuts. Mm -hmm. And and after the burning of the city, they picked up more numbers because they had momentum now. Yeah. Um, Oh yeah. uh, I I heard that they were approaching two hundred thousand. Yep. Yeah. So. Things began to break down in the Roman formations, and their shield wall fell as men had to turn and face screaming, woad-covered warriors coming in from literally every direction. In a moment reminiscent of the fall of Varus and his legions in the Tudeburgerwald, the Romans were and who overwhelmed. who could forget that? <laughs> Varus, give me back my legions. I'm, I'm, I'm talking to you guys here. You guys know what I'm talking about. But the Romans were overwhelmed. <laughs> Shut up. Ah, oh, that little chestnut. No respect. <laughs> I, 
I, I shouldn't have overestimated you, gentlemen. I'm sorry. I get it. I've read. I've, I've read the poem, but still, like, good lord. I remember. I got the newspaper clipping. <laughs> you went to college with that guy. And the clay tablets and everything. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, anyhow, <laughs> fuckers. <laughs> the Romans were. O- <laughs> the Romans were overwhelmed. Knocked out of formation, dragged to the ground, and beaten, slashed, and stabbed to death by overwhelming numbers of British warriors. Cassius Dio mentions 80,000 Britons present, which is almost certainly an exaggeration. Modern estimates say that twenty to 30,000 men, as many as ten times the number of the Romans present, is not out of the realm of likelihood, however. And so, as a result, Cariolus and his command element on horseback managed to break out and run for their lives, with the Britons having no good means of pursuing them, but the damage was done. Of the six cohorts of Roman infantry, they were slaughtered to a man. Every single one of them. That is fucking crazy. The only people who survived this was the commander, some cavalry, and Decianus, whose yeah. fault it was. The only reason why he saw shit going sideways and just went to Gaul. But he left the country. So. Oh, God. And, and there's no number as to like how many of the cavalry survived. In in, Cass- in in Dio's, I think, is the way where it just says some of his cavalry. Yep. Some. That doesn't sound like a lot. Well, because lot. apparently they didn't, by the time they decided to beat feet, they were surrounded. Oh, so yeah. So the cavalry had to fight their way out. Mm-hmm. So I'm guessing they probably took some losses. So, riding high on the knowledge that she could meet the Roman forces in the field and defeat them, at least on this scale, Boudicca soon turned her forces south towards the Thames River towards land previously held by the Atrobates, who had been squashed by the Romans in the previous decade. There, on the banks of the Thames, lay a new settlement, built only in the last few years by the Romans, but one that was already full of merchants and administrators, meant to serve as a dedicated provincial capital and a new trade hub, replacing the more improvised, improvised previous capital that had been Camelodunum. It was sort of like if you want to buy your capital city at Ikea. That's the thing. No, <laughs> no I'm, I'm not kidding. No, that's it's basically not that far off. They basically shipped the city over in boats. It was like it was right. flat packed. The, yeah. the equivalent of a modern prefab base. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was, yeah. This and, city. And no one could understand the language. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'd, I'd like to buy the new Froggen here. <laughs> How do we build a building with an Allen wrench? Everybody's just arguing as they're putting up the. As they're putting the Every town. couple in southern Britain getting into a fight. <laughs> Every single gun broke up. Yeah, it looked bigger in the store. <laughs> like, just trying to move it up steps. You jam- oh, we jammed it. We, we were walking it. through doing the shopping, and I sat there and I went, "No actual house looks like this." <laughs> so this city, with its many, <laughs> so this city with its many piers and market stalls and stout walls, was called Londinium, although we'd know it by a different name. Manchester. London. Oh, I'm sorry. Essex. <laughs> London. With a population of about 25,000, it was a tempting target, and the British horde turned south towards their next ripe opportunity. However, scouts had spotted them coming and got word to the city that Boudicca and her army were on their way. And since London was not under the administrative thumb of Cadus Decianus, who had ordered the people of Canelodunum to stay put to their, I'm going to say detriment, uh, the... The Roman governor of Britain, Gaius Suetonius Paulinus, known to history simply as Suetonius, although it's not the same Suetonius who wrote one of the sources we're using for the story that talks about Suetonius, Romans, 
Anyway, they saw things in a different way. Now they're just all named Tony. Yeah. <laughs> or Michael. <laughs> According to Tacitus, Suetonius, quote, looked round on his scanty force of soldiers and remembered, with what a serious warning the rashness of Petilius had been punished, he resolved to save the province at the cost of a single town. Nor did the tears and weeping of the people, what as, uh, as they implored his aid, deter him from giving the signal of departure and receiving into his army all who would go with him. Those who were chained to the spot by the weakness of their sex, the infirmity of age, or stubbornness, or the attractions of the place, were cut off by the enemy, end quote. And cut off they were, mostly from their heads. In the latter part of the year of 60 AD, tens of thousands of angry Britons fell upon the undefended city and set about the work of pillage and slaughter. Now, the death wouldn't be on the same scale as Camelot Dunham, as thousands had already fled, but thousands of Romans still remained in the city. And they got the same treatment. Looting, carrying off treasure, weapons, supplies, and all else they could carry. The Britons put the remaining people of Londinium to the sword and the city itself to the torch. Archaeological efforts have covered an ash layer similar to Camelot Dunham and carbon dated it to the 60s AD. And many bodies were found in mass burials also dated to this period. Most of them bearing the marks of swords, spear points, and blunt trauma on the bones. I know we've said this before, but... It really can't be overstated how every structure in Britain is just built on corpses. Yeah, it's like everything in Canada built after 1975 because they just keep unearthing dead children. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Ireland, too. Mm. Yeah. Now, Cassius Dio writes of, quote, The noblest women having their bodies impaled on spikes, their breasts cut off and sewn into their mouths to the accompaniment of sacrifices, banquets, and wanton behavior, end quote. The refugees fled west, accompanied by the governor Suetonius, heading for the protection of their legions in Wales or taking ship from southern ports back to the relative safety of Gaul. And as the new year dawned and 60 AD became 61, taking stock of their gains from what was now the ruins of two Roman cities, Boudicca's forces turned their eye further westwards, striking up the Thames Valley towards another colonia, another settlement city, that sat on an old Iron Age British site called Verulamium and its population of about 20,000 people where the cathedral city of St. Albans now sits in Hertfordshire. This situation was one very similar to that of Londinium. The city's prefects got warning of the approaching British horde, and they decided that surviving was actually kind of a cool thing to do, and so ordered an evacuation, but again, only part of the city's population managed to get away before the again undefended city was overrun by Britons in their tens of thousands to the same predictable results. The blood flowed, goods were ransacked, and buildings burned, again leaving a significant datable layer of burning and ash for for archaeologists to find in the 20th century. In a manner of a few months, Boudicca and her forces had burned the three of the biggest cities in Britain's southeastern quadrant and laid waste to who knows how many other towns, settlements, farmsteads, and anything else that was Roman for miles around. It's estimated that 80,000 people had been killed in her tribe's rampage by this time. But Rome was finally starting to to prepare a response in earnest, and Roman legionaries would meet British warriors on the field in a climactic battle that would take the struggle to a different level of stakes. And as De La Soul told us, stakes is high. We'll talk about that and what came after once we're back from a short break. 
Tired of listening to whiskey tubers talk about whiskeys you'll never see? Want to hear reviews about whiskeys you can actually afford? How about something you can truly find on the shelf? Are you looking for honest, unbiased feedback about the whiskeys in your budget? Then join us on YouTube at Thrifty Whiskey. Here at Thrifty Whiskey, we do blind tastings of whiskeys that are $30 and under. Bourbon. Scotch. Irish. Indian. And even Canadian. So catch us at Thrifty Whiskey. And until then, may the winds of fortune sail you. May you sail a gentle sea. May it always be the other guy who says, This This drink's on me. And we're back. After the flight from Londinium and the burning of the third Roman city, enough was enough. Governor Suetonius finally took the threat of Boudicca's revolt to be a truly existential one. Now, fearing that another large tribe could join her when word got out of her success, which would really put the Romans in a bad spot, Suetonius, whose troops were leading the Romans' assault against the Druids on Anglesey, traveled to their camps and gave orders that pulled most of his forces out from the siege, leaving a couple cohorts to keep the Druids and their people pinned in place. Now, Suetonius had with him the remainder of the 9th Legion Hispania, the entirety of his own 14th Legion Gamina, a few cohorts of the 20th Legion Valeria Victrix, and some auxiliaries. He also put in a request for the 2nd Legion Augusta, based up in Exeter, to come join him, but in a reminder that this was still the Roman Empire, and these are still still aristocrats we're dealing with, the commander of the 2nd Legion, Puenius Postumus, told Suetonius to fuck off into the sea with his pockets full of stones and refused to come to his aid. (laughs) In all, Suetonius had about 10 to 12,000 men with him, a significant force, but he knew from what he had heard that he would be outnumbered heavily by the Britons. His march was slower than that of Quintius... uh, than that of Quintus uh, Carialis and the Ninth Legion, more deliberate and watchful of their surroundings in order to avoid another ambush. However, they were traveling down the most complete Roman road in Britain at the time or since, called Watling Street, which was wide, paved, and through more open terrain, allowing Suetonius's men to move quickly despite their caution. Also, Watling Street, still there. Yep. Still yeah. there. <laughs> most of the Roman roads are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then, the next Our step... Our roads can't last fucking six weeks. No. Uh, nope. Well, it's because we don't have, you know, the, the, the Ninth Legion Hispania building ours. We have a dude named Barry. He's on break for seven out of eight hours. Yeah. Ronnie Iris. <laughs> <laughs> then, is, then that, is that what Donnie Iris does during the workday? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. He's king cool, man. He can do whatever he wants. Then the next step was to make sure that the Britons would come to them. Suetonius dispatched slaves with messages of peace overtures to Boudicca and her people, making sure to note which direction he was coming from. After hearing the messages, and according to Cassius Dio, sacrificing, or excuse me, crucifying the slaves who delivered them, Boudicca and her forces swung northwest up Watling Street to meet the legions head on. Now, if they could defeat Suetonius in the field, there was only one legion left in Britain to defeat, and if other tribes joined her after she managed to defeat Suetonius, then it would become an easy matter to wipe them out and remove the stain of Rome from the British from the British Isles, handing the empire its biggest defeat since Hannibal annihilated 12 legions at Cannae the better part of three centuries before. Now, key to Roman strategy was getting to pick the battlefield, and Suetonius did this masterfully. None of the records of the time mention exactly where this battlefield was, although some modern historians have placed it somewhere in Oxfordshire. Suetonius placed his forces at a defile that opened up onto a wide plain, with forests at the Romans' back and steep, craggy hills on the flanks, almost eliminating the ability for an enemy to launch a flank attack. Now, Suetonius placed his legionaries in close order, with cavalry and auxiliaries on the flanks, and there they waited for the Britons to arrive. And arrive they did, in great numbers. 
Cassius Dio writes that even if the Romans were in a single rank, their line wouldn't stretch as far as that of the massive presence of the Britons. Now, all three of the classical sources present numbers of the Britons ranging from 230,000 to 300,000. This is definitely too many people, as it's estimated that the combined population of the Acheni and the Trinovantes was in the range of about 200,000 people in total, and the fighters were only a portion of that. So did they find their Tolkien ghost army? Uh, more likely numbers are probably in the range of thirty-five to 50,000, most of whom would not have been dedicated warriors, maybe 60,000 if they managed to pick up forces from other tribes who didn't go whole hog into the rebellion but had some people leave to join up. But that's still enough to outrun number of the Romans in the range of four or five to one. So the numbers are still very much in British favor. The Britons took to the field, their forces arrayed opposite the Romans, confident that their numbers would tell. Behind them sitting the camp with the baggage train, the civilians, and their supplies. All of those people watching eagerly to see how badly the Romans would be defeated. The Britons stood opposite their enemy, screaming and chanting, dancing and whooping, beating drums and blowing horns, trying to intimidate their outnumbered foe. Blue balls flapping. Like Rasputin on the table at Yar. Oh my god. It must have been really wild. I mean, just the sound of this alone. Like, yeah. As a Roman. And and they, they talk about it more in Anglesey, and I think it's Tacitus. Yeah, Tacitus also writes about um, what Suetonius is doing in Anglesey. Yeah, Tacitus covered that entire campaign. And that they were paralyzed. He said that they were frozen in fear. Like, some of these just from these hulking, pelted, like, screaming, wailing men, women, children... And a lot of slingers. And if you've ever heard somebody sling a rock, yeah. it's loud. <laughs> and and now imagine 2,500 of yeah. those. It, what the fuck are you going to do? The Britons would also And the, like, also, and the, the weather was lousy. Drool. It's foggy all the time. You can't see shit. You just hear these unnatural sounds and vaguely wolf-shaped men because they're wearing animal pelts and are a foot taller than you. So I forgot to write this down, but I just remembered now the Britons would drill holes in their sling stones. Mm-hmm. So that when loud. the slings were flying, they would whistle. Oh my god! They would whistle and moan. And as the they were forehead of the poor you. bastard next to you just blows up. But they also <laughs> they are whistling, but they also crack because these stones are going so fast when they come out of these slings that there's a sonic boom. Oh it's god. a tiny sonic boom, but it's a sonic boom. Yeah, it's like so cracking much. a whip. Like, yeah, that's the reason why. Yeah, a whip, it's like the cracker end of a whip. Yeah, why a whip makes that noise is because it breaks the sound barrier. Yeah. Now, Tacitus, supposedly directly quoting his father-in-law, Gnaeus Julius Agricola, who was the deputy commander on scene, writes of how Suetonius responded, quote, Ignore the racket made by these savages. They are more women than men in their ranks. They are not soldiers. They are not even properly equipped. We have, we have beaten them before, many times, and when they see our weapons and feel our spirit, they will crack. Now, was, did he sound like Clark Gable in reality, or is that your interpretation? They will swoon. I dare say, I dare say, they have the vapors. Throw the javelin. <laughs> Fuck you guys. <laughs> then push forward. Knock them down with your shields and finish them with your swords. Forget about plunder. Just win, and you shall have everything. And frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. <laughs> the... The 11th Foghorn Leghorn <laughs> cohort. I say, I say there's something wrong about a boy that don't like baseball. 
everybody just walking around sounding like Brock Meyer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, just wait. The next guy is going to sound like Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> well, see, we got to. So, Should the... we put a beer can in his hand? <laughs> so the Britons launched their attack, the ground thundering as they charged forward, fighters racing to be the first to try and break the Roman line. Chariots bearing nobles racing ahead, pushing in from a wide front as the open plain became a narrower front of attack due to the constraints of the terrain. As they closed, they flung javelin and, slang, and slung stones to little effect against the shield wall of the Romans, at the same time taking galling losses from Scorpio bolts and thousands of pili flung from the Roman lines. But still, It would choke the valley with the dead. Yeah. That's how many people are, are doing this right now. And that's why Suetonius picked where he was going to fight. Exactly. He, he was no dummy, but like, they would they would have to climb over mounds of bodies that were impaled. Just and some of these, if you got hit with a scorpion, it would nail you to the ground. Well, oftentimes the scorpion bolt would just go straight through the first guy, probably sometimes into the guy behind him. And that's because they were so heavy. How yeah. long were these bolts? About three and a half, four feet. <laughs> yeah, meter. Yeah, it would get, yeah. and they'd had so much velocity, it'd probably go through like. You, you could string up three or four people yeah. each. Yeah, and they were, uh, the, the, the head on these things was about the size of a kitchen knife. Yeah, they were uh, iron more often than not. Yeah. But like, if you had a shield, it would go through the shield and through you. Like, yep. just, you just bet. You just have to hope they miss. Like, it, they would they would go through a horse. Yep. And actually, <laughs> like, these things were, were less effective against the Britons than they would be against other enemies because they're really good at people at skewering people that are in close order. It'll, it'll Not, blow through your ranks. There aren't yeah. ranks. There aren't ranks. It's, it's just a mass. Although I it's feel a like mass. This, it's it's quite be, literally a the Brits yeah. would have had to be body to body getting down into this, this point. Well, so, once you get I mean, close, you yeah. Point in the general direction, you're going to hit something. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but at that point, you're going to want like stones that are going to bounce around or break. Yeah, when you when you got those kind of numbers that are just funneled in. The Britons also stumbled over all the caltrops that were laid in the valley <laughs> by the Roman forces. Not hollow like the Russians. No. No. But, yeah, imagine that. You're running, you're charging, all of a sudden your feet are full of iron spikes. And the cool thing about caltrops is they are shaped in such a way that no matter how you drop them, there's a point in the air. Yep. The Romans were really good at making oh, so things that would like hurt the, or kill the you. The little ones. The little like ones. The shaped, like, shaped like a D4. Okay, yep. You'll get that reference. <laughs> yep. They're just talking about cool guy stuff. But but there's there's no way that you're going to dodge this. Like, if you step like, on dude, it, Like, dude, I stabbing. had a planter wart once, and I wanted to die. Mm. Like, <laughs> a caltrop in my foot? I'm, I'm done. I'm out. All right, guys. I'll catch up with you later. Yeah. It's like you a don't, splinter. You don't have a whole hell of a lot of choice here. you got to press on. Otherwise, that legion is coming getting, for you. Or you're just <laughs> yeah, getting run over by over. the people behind you, too. Yeah, that's the, the problem. 80,000 screaming stone dudes and on that and on that uh in that vein still the britons came ahead crashing into the roman lines pushing up against them and trying to grab and tear away shields and helmets striking for weak points in roman armor but the roman lines held british bodies falling as gladius strikes found exposed flesh then the steam ran out of the british attack things were still packed close together in order and it was time for the Roman cohorts to do what they did best. Bit by bit, they pushed, stabbing out and felling enemies one rank at a time, over and over again. Slow, methodical, inexorable. The Roman cavalry and auxiliaries struck out at the flanks of the British attack, worrying at the infantry and getting in amongst the vulnerable slingers and archers. The Romans began to push the Britons back. Tacitus writes, quote, 
At first, the legionaries stood motionless, keeping to the defile as a natural protection. Then, when the closer advance of the enemy enabled them to exhaust their missiles with certitude of aim, they dashed forward in a wedge-like formation. The auxiliaries charged in the same style, and the cavalry, with lances extended, broke their way through any parties of resolute men they encountered. The remainder took to flight, although escape was difficult, as the cordon of wagons had blocked the outlets. The troops gave no quarter, even to the women. The baggage animals themselves were speared and added to the piles of bodies. The glory won in the course of the day was remarkable and equal to that of our older victories, for, by some accounts, little less than 80,000 Britons fell, at a cost of some 400 Romans killed and a not much greater number wounded. Suetonius's men pushed forward and began to break the British horde, but those who wished to run rather than stay and fight found themselves being pushed into the camp and the baggage train slowing them down and allowing the Romans to catch up and set about the work of slaughter. Now, there is likely plenty more exaggeration in Tacitus's account here. The baggage animals and civilians probably weren't slaughtered, at least not in the scale that he says, as the Romans were normally far more inclined to capture what they could and take as many captives for sale into slavery as possible. Still, it was very much a bloody victory for the Romans. Eminent historian Guy de la Bedoyere estimates that perhaps some twenty to 25,000 Britons were killed that day and a roughly equal number, mostly the civilians in the baggage train, captured, whereas Roman losses were likely higher than what Tacitus writes, probably in the range of 1,000 to 1,500 dead legionaries and auxiliaries. Most of the Britons likely would have escaped the battlefield, as the Romans were probably fairly exhausted and too few in number to launch an effective pursuit. But for Suetonius and his men, it was a stunning victory, worthy of the legacy of the Roman army, and for Boudicca, it was a gut-wrenching reversal of fortune. Boudicca, it is said, survived the battle and escaped the carnage the Romans inflicted that day, fleeing off to the relative safety of the hinterlands. But her forces were scattered, the people she was supposed to protect and raise to glory and victory were now on the run, in chains, or lying in their own blood on the field of battle. It's said that many of the chiefs and nobles and the warrior class of the tribes made brave stands, which ultimately still led to their deaths, and the leadership of the rebellion was now without most of its best warriors. Her revolt was broken, her people were broken, and Boudicca's will was broken. But she had sent shockwaves through the Roman Empire. Upon receiving word of Londinium's destruction, the Emperor Nero called for the abandonment of the entire province of Britain and had to be talked out of this by his closest advisors. Fearing another rebellion on the back of Suetonius's victory, Rome replaced him before he could launch mass reprisals against the British tribes, putting a more conciliatory man in as governor, although Suetonius was still awarded a triumph and all the accolades of victory and spent the rest of his life in imperial service, even ending up on the winning side of the civil war that followed Nero's death in 69 AD, and supposedly dying a very wealthy man. Boudicca's fate was not so auspicious. Now, the accounts differ as to exactly what happened. Some say she was wounded in battle and never recovered, dying of her wounds somewhere in the eastern or in the English countryside. Others state that she fell ill, Tacitus saying that it was of indolence and severe melancholy, essentially dying of a broken heart. Cassius Dio said that it was a disease of the stomach, and both state that she was given a lavish ceremonial burial among British tribes that were willing to hide her from Roman justice. Wasn't Others say there, that... Wasn't there a... A rumor that she was buried at, like, King's Cross or We're something getting like that. that. Okay. Yeah. So, others say that out of the shame of defeat or the fear of Roman reprisal, 
she took poison or slit her own belly open, removing herself from this world on her terms. There is no record of what happened to her teenage daughters or exactly where her body was put to rest. Accounts say that it is somewhere in Wales or somewhere to the south down near Portsmouth. It's also said that Boudicca's remains lie where King's Cross train station now stands in London, specifically between platforms 9 and 10. So right where you used to see kids running smack into brick wall thinking they could get uh, on a train a, to some wizard school. Uh, Harry Potter it's the today. same part of the station. Like all the people... Maybe she was a wizard. Because after the... Or I guess a witch. I don't I didn't yeah. really read Harry Potter. So Boudicca's rebellion... Was she a turf? <laughs> I, I, it's very in right now. Uh, no, very I, in right now. <laughs> I prefer the term uh, feminism appropriating reactionary transphobe. <laughs> I like it. Fart. So, she's just afraid of penises. Yeah. Who isn't? Who isn't? They're terrifying. <laughs> I mean, we did talk about those naked British warriors. They don't photograph particularly well. <laughs> no. No. Let me put it this way. Georgia O'Keeffe wasn't making paintings that looked like dongs. <laughs> you know. So, Boudicca's Rebellion... I just can't believe George O'Keefe would go around making paintings that remind me of absolutely nothing. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) That's a virgin joke, everybody at home. I hope that one didn't go over anybody's head. (laughs) So, Boudicca's Rebellion, as courageous and unusual as it was, really didn't do much to curtail the British conquest of Britain. It set things back, sure, but honestly, the Roman military and economic machine was mighty, and within a couple of decades, you wouldn't have even known it it had happened. I mean, London never recovered. Yeah, Camelodunum, Londinium, Verulamium, all were rebuilt and repopulated with more retired soldiers. All three pretty much back up and running within about five years. Yeah, apparently, like, London looked fairly similar within the year. Mm-hmm. But it's also, the the sack of Londinium is very early in its, in its mm-hmm. like, history. About five years. Which is very, like, the first thing that happened to London, they were like, well, fuck this, and then just let it get torched. <laughs> Now we just have to do it again. Yeah. Well, I mean, Suetonius's line of thinking was, well, let's get the fuck out of here, and we could just rebuild it when they're done. Yeah, we'll just and we'll just ship them a new city. And he was and right. He did it all the time. We'll, yeah. ju- we'll just order another one on IKEA. Yeah. Right, we'll just say it came broken. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> more. Than, God damn it. Now, more and more Romans entered Britain to settle and seek their fortune, and more and more Britons were adopting the Roman ways of dressing, speaking, building, and worshipping. More British leaders had their lands subsumed in full by Roman authority after their deaths, and the march of Roman conquest carried on, pushing further and further into the reaches of Britain by the end of the first century. Two things stopped Roman expansion in the British Isles. One was the Scots. (laughs) who for decades dealt with Roman expeditions to conquer their lands by melting into the highlands and launching guerrilla wars that took a major toll on Roman troops, and eventually leading the Romans to say, fuck this, these people are impossible. Not only are we going to pull back and not try to take their territory, we're going to build a massive wall to keep them out. (laughs) (laughs) It's not to keep them out, it's to keep them in. The fucking White Walkers from goddamn Game of Thrones. Yeah, Yeah. and the Scots have carried... Just put these mud people on the other side of that fucking wall. There's a couple walls. It's not like there's one. Yeah, there was... bigger, but there's a couple of them. Yeah, there was the Antonine Wall, which was a little more... Meant to be a little more kind of a a holdover until they got Hadrian's Wall built. But yeah, it's just built one. They built two country-sized walls. (laughs) Fuck these mud people. (laughs) (laughs) 
But and, I mean, it would be wild. Like, yeah. it would just be a bunch of people who just, like, kind of appear, stab you, and then run away. And then, how, But how, they're like, there aren't any trees. I don't know if anybody here has ever seen Scotland. Like, it's like, where the fuck are they hiding? I'm like, slightly familiar. What, <laughs> does it, like, what does it say about the Scots that the Romans were like, the human sacrificing druids will stick around and fight these guys, but those motherfuckers, <laughs> like now we're, we're done. We're out. <laughs> what, yeah. are they, what are they doing to their sheep? <laughs> oh, I hear is the crying of the lambs. <laughs> they they the saw sc- those war elephants, and they, the Highlanders just spit on their hands. They're like, let's go. Look at the ash on that one. Bobby, give me a water. <laughs> I reckon I could. <laughs> Right? <laughs> <laughs> just, like, <laughs> lift me. <laughs> just put him on his shoulder. Toss him like a fucking camera. <laughs> Yeah, it's like, gonna be a broadie. <laughs> but no, I mean, you do have a, a point. Like, Suetonius was just like, he found the Druids and was like, fuck this. We're staying in Anglesey. We're burning all their precious trees. But the Scots, he was just like, nah. nah. <laughs> nah. nah. We, ain't, right we ain't playing golf. Yeah. <laughs> and the Scots have carried that badge of honor of being a colossal pain in the ass ever since. The Romans also got to the west coast of England took one look at the cross at the short passage to Ireland and just went, nah. <laughs> nah. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> Although Roman traders would spend a lot of time in Ireland, no full Roman settlement was ever built on the island. A point of pride for the Irish. And this carried on in Britain. <laughs> yeah, we should, yeah, they sure showed us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and this carried on in Britain for centuries in relative stasis. Eventually, the only people that would manage to kick the Romans out of Britain were the Romans. After reaching its greatest extent in 117 AD, the Roman Empire eventually fell into decline through overextension, economic mismanagement, civil wars, new barbarian threats, the division of the empire into two halves. Eventually, the means to protect and administer Britannia as a province just didn't exist. And in 410 AD, the Emperor Honorius announced that he was pulling Roman forces out of Britain and back into the interior of the Western Empire. By that point, there was little difference between the Roman side of British life and the Celtic side. Things had melded into one big cultural blob, including the new paradigmatic influence of Christianity. The departure of Rome after three and a half centuries of rule left a lot of infrastructure behind, much of which can still be seen today, but no means to effectively protect it. And so opportunistic mercenaries, settlers, and chiefs came across the North Sea, and the Anglo-Saxons began their takeover of Roman Britain in a period that would give us everything from the origins of the Arthur myth to the Sutton Hoo ship burial, and although the vestiges of Roman Britain passed into decline, they never went away, and the same goes for the deeds of Boudicca. Boudicca's story is, uh, is of course, one that's fascinated writers and historians throughout the centuries that have passed since the t- uh, events of her revolt. We have, of course, the three major documents from Roman writers that we use as sources in this series, and there were others as well who made mentions of her deeds and their impact on the empire. Speaking of impact on the Empire, the first defeat of Roman forces in the field at Boudicca's hands changed the way legions approached wars of conquest. It it brought about a complete strategic change. Instead of allowing their entire manpower in a region to be soaked up into one location, as they were against the Druids at Anglesey, strategic methods changed and instead required Roman commanders to spread their forces out to make sure they had all their bases covered against a repeat in other provinces. Make yourself more likely to kill the rebellion before it gets large scale. After the fall of Rome in 476, writers with a historical bent still did their tur- still uh, did take their turn at the story of the Boudican Revolt. 
Now, 6th century English writer Gildas makes extensive mention of Boudicca and her rebellion in his work De Excidio et Conquestu Britanniae, where he calls her a, quote, treacherous lioness who butchered the governors who had been sent to give fuller voice and strength to the endeavors of Roman rule, which is an unsurprising lack of charity, given that Gildas' main job was to reinforce the power of the Roman church in Anglo-Saxon Britain. Mm. The Venerable Bede tells of the rebellion in his ecclesiastical, uh, ecclesiastical history of the English people in 731, and Nennius writes in the 870s of the same event in his Historia Bretonum, but neither work actually mentions Boudicca, hmm. probably because, um, well, they were monks and she was a woman. Hmm. Other writers, most of them ecclesiastical, wrote of the revolt in the Middle Ages, mostly because their favorite subject was to offer their own takes on classical source material or earlier ecclesiastical writings, which is actually pretty much what we do here, when you think about it. Although probably they did it with fewer dick jokes. That's their loss. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe, yeah. I mean, actually, if you ever look in the margins of some medieval manuscripts. I was going to say, they they had them. There's a lot of filthy shit, yeah. Now, where Boudicca starts to become really popular is after the Renaissance, when the classical works about her start to be translated and available to the everyday reader through the printing press, and history start to appear with her as a main character in the mid-1500s. In the late 1580s, when England was threatened by invasion from the Spanish Armada, Boudicca became a stock character of sorts, as a sort of precursor to the might of Elizabeth I, and all sorts of media evoke the Boudiccan spirit of this period from poetries to plays to genealogies that try to prove Elizabeth to be one of Boudicca's direct ancestors. <laughs> or direct descendants, excuse me. Boudicca was the source of Britain's first real national anthem. <laughs> one of the first popular mu- musicals in the world called Boudicca, or The British Heroine, was written by Henry Purcell in 1695, and it contained a song called Britain's Strike Home that became the song that was sung everywhere, in theaters, at state events, especially when Britain was at war, which in the 18th century was all the damn time. Yeah, that song was big in, like, the 19th century. Yeah. Like, they just kept singing it. Kind of yeah. like Hamilton. <sighs> I mean, well, it wasn't until the end of the 1700s yeah, that it's God... just them rapping about yeah. Boudicca real slow. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't until the end of the 1700s that God Save the King, which had been around for 50 years, really took over as a more official anthem. Uh, and as an aside, during the Battle of Trafalgar in 1805... Uh, the band of HMS Tonnant was ordered to play Britain's Strike Home on the quarterdeck as she sailed towards the Franco-Spanish fleet, and they did so on repeat until a French cannonball swept across the deck and killed the entire band. <laughs> which... Which brought the song to a rather abrupt halt. Oh no, the band! <laughs> <laughs> the... Now the love for Boudicca... the entire band... <laughs> Well, they shouldn't have been lined up. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Down they went. Can Double. you imagine how fucking funny that was on a French side? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you imagine the noise that comes out of a trumpet when this player just gets... Uh, just, <laughs> just red mist. <laughs> so the love for Boudicca carried on into the 18th and 19th centuries, and that's when she really starts to make a bunch of appearances in visual art through sculptures, paintings, stained glass, and the like much of which can still be seen on the streets of London or on the walls of the National Gallery. In particular, the Thomas Thornycroft statue that still stands on the Victoria Embankment by the Thames River, complete with wheel sides on the chariots that never existed, and a great story of Prince Albert 
husband of Queen Victoria. Incredibly funny. Lending his finest racehorses to serve as the models for the horses pulling the chariot. Because they get, like, Thornycroft, like, he was, like, kind of flagging on the project. Yeah. He was like, ah, I don't really know. Like, it's not doing what I want to do. And she shows up with a bunch of horses. He's yeah. like, you should make them look like this. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, fuck yeah, dude. They just finished. <laughs> This is Pickles. He shall be your inspiration. Good boy, Pickles. Trigger and silver. Yeah. So she became. So Boudica they also came in a can. Yeah. Boudica also became a. <laughs> I I did resist the other Prince Albert yeah. joke. Thank you, because I'm maturing as a person. Because I only have like five days left to get my. Uh, uh, resolutions in because yeah. it's oh god because it's almost a different fucking year already by the way Chris I'd like to thank you for this episode for all of the piercing insight you've brought well you know that's what I like to do here <laughs> I took care of it don't thanks, worry thanks buddy I appreciate yeah. you so get it because it's a dick piercing yeah <laughs> <laughs> so Boudica Kate oh god knows. it's Kate happening again knows. it's happening again we're falling apart so Boudica became a I central I painted mine blue <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow. Put that thing away, Steph Keith. <laughs> she gets stuck in the dryer again. Oh, no, it's back. It's back. Stop it. So, Boudicca became a central figure in first-wave feminism. As women sought the right to vote in Britain, both as an inspirational figure and symbol to members of the movement, and as a way of making their argument. Basically saying, look, our first great national hero was a woman. So how about letting us into the voting booth, huh? She was described in suffragette pamphlets as, quote, the eternal feminine. The guardian of the hearth, the avenger of its wrongs upon the defacer and the despoiler, and was seen as a symbol of victory when women's suffrage was granted in Britain in 1918, <clears throat> two years before the U.S. <clears throat> so, in modern times, there's been a couple different approaches to the Boudicca story. The first is the pushback against British folklore in general and the attempt by people such as the Welsh, the Cornish, the Scots, and the more traditionally Celtic parts of Britain to reclaim Boudicca as a Celtic heroine rather than a generally British one, claiming that those who were descended uh, from the Anglo-Saxon and the Norman invaders essentially had no claim to her, even though we know that this is generally bullshit because even long before the 21st century, all of those bloodlines were so fused that they were really, really, there are very, very few purely Celtic or Anglo-Saxon or Viking population groups because that's what 20 centuries of everybody banging each other does. But... There are also plenty of writers, artists, and filmmakers still willing to portray her and take on her story in novels, poetry, manga, video games, documentaries, plays, and made-for-TV movies. There's a Doctor Who-based radio drama. Uh, there was a 1970s miniseries on the BBC starring Dame Sean Phillips, and a made-for-TV movie released by ITV in 2003 starring Alex Kingston from Doctor Who and Emily Blunt in her first feature-length role. Oh, uh, the name, delightful. Yeah. The name of the film, simply called Boudicca, was considered to be, quote, too complicated for American audiences and likely to put them off wanting to consume the product. Uh, I'm not watching some lady movie, I'll tell you that right now. And so it got a DVD release stateside as Warrior Queen. God damn it. So, wow. God. So, well, I mean, their hang-up then was clearly like, they can't say Boudicca, can they? No. <laughs> That's exactly what it was. <laughs> like, they'll probably watch this, but like, I oh, really think they're going to watch this. This is also the time whenever we had just recently settled on how we were going to spell Boudicca. <laughs> yeah, because there's a couple hundred years. What you, I'm, I'm sorry. What? You, I'm sorry. What the fuck do you mean settled? That debate is uh, still, still going, going on. on. Now it's like how many C's are going to be in it? And the yeah. Welsh, the Welsh have theirs, which I uh, Buddha. Bu yeah. Yeah. And so 
you still see these media dis- depictions and use of her as a symbol. Uh, you'll find them at like everything from pro-choice rallies. You'll see her as a comic book character, as a as a an option for your British national leader if you're playing the Sid Meier Civilization games. <laughs> Uh, on placards whenever people gather to protest when some Tory minister does something gross and sexist. And of course, like any national symbol from times before, she's become a darling to the fat dorks on Britain's far right, who like to see someone who's attempted to fight off the yoke of Rome as driving people to fight off invaders from beyond Britain's shores, although this time around, instead of the Roman Empire, it's refugees who are risking drowning on rubber dinghies in the English Channel. Now finally, there's also a movement of kind to disprove Boudicca so to speak, uh, of, of modern historians taking apart the idea of her existence as we know it, which runs the gamut from, well, we're fairly certain that Boudicca wasn't her real name, and I think we're taking the no-shit approach on that one. Like, yeah. We're taking the name that's given to us right. in the stories. Uh, but there's also a bunch of killjoys going, she likely never actually existed, she's purely folklore, and, and as such, her story should be wiped from modern consciousness. And look, while I think that there's a, ba- a debate that's to be had it makes for interesting discussion. I think it's worth having. We are dealing with something that is never going to be proven either way. Unless we invent time travel or we make some amazing find in a peat bog of a perfectly preserved six-foot-tall red-headed woman with blue face paint, a big sword, and a name tag that says, Hello, my name is Just Queen Boudicca. punching a Roman skull in death. Yeah. So while I think it is a worthy debate, I also think it's worth letting the story carry on, because good stories are what attract people to history and to the roots of their identity, and to derive inspiration from the great deeds of the past to inspire the great deeds of tomorrow. And that's what the story of Boudicca does, even two millennia after the fact. It serves to show us that powerful women who stand up to injustice and oppression do make history, and do make waves that can break even the greatest boulders, and can stand to inspire women to great things thousands of years hence. And it brings me great comfort to know that somewhere on this planet probably stands a woman whose story will carry the same weight as Boudicca's. And 20 centuries from now, whoever is telling her story, whether it be our 80 times great-grandchildren or simply our consciousness uploaded to the cloud and then put into android bodies, does so with the same admiration and fascination that people today hold for Boudicca, Queen of the Akeni. And that's our story. So remember, kids... When you're wronged, burn down their city. Most of them have to go, man. They're you, a blight. There's too many cities anyway. Like, why is Wheeling? Toledo. <laughs> Toledo. <laughs> the fuck out of here. Yeah. Pointless. Pointless. Could be Boudicca's, Virgin Ohio countryside again. Boudicca's a weird one, man. Like... I, I do understand, like, the argument of, was Boudicca real? <sighs> Boy, that's a bitch to disprove, because there is so much. And there was definitely an uprising. You can't, you can't. Like, all of these events happened. These things were real. Mm-hmm. Was yeah. she necessarily the one calling the shots? Boy, it'd be really tough to say that she wasn't. Unless there is some gigantic, colossal historical discovery, you're never going to disprove it. Right. You're also n- probably never going to prove it. Yeah. But it's. I mean, I kind of said it jokingly, the, but the absence like, of evidence is not evidence of absence. Exactly. You know, like that's. It's it, you're going to have to work a hell of a lot harder to disprove this. But the, it's wild to me that Boudicca is seen as, and I mean, has been for centuries. Is this like the the picture of what is essentially the modern feminist? Because Boudicca was a monster. Mm-hmm. Her behavior was monstrous, and don't get me wrong. Like Boudicca was pushed to this point. Like, she watched her daughters be raped. 
she was savagely beaten and stripped of everything that she had and held dear. All of it. So I understand why somebody would respond this way, but Boudica, man, like, Boudica is a, as a heroine, it's a tough one because putting the entirety, like, they, they didn't take prisoners. They no. slaughtered everybody. They weren't interested. And they weren't interested in slaves. They weren't interested in prisoners. And this was not common. Like, this was not no. the kind of behavior that you would see. Boudica was a monster. The Britons ran some of the largest slave markets in Northern Europe. These were a people right. that relied heavily upon enslavement, and they didn't worry about it this time. She I mean, killed and this the is women, the children, the, the elderly, elderly, everyone. Well, and because they also mostly traded slaves with the Romans, so if they capture Romans, who are they going to Yeah, you can't really them sell them to. Mm-hmm. Like, we ain't going to sell them to Gaul. Nobody likes the French. The Scots. They, I mean, even if Britons didn't want that much to do with Scots. <laughs> the way on the elephant. He's got a look in his eye. I don't like it. They kept the wall. Yeah. <laughs> it's still there. <laughs> like, it, you know what? It's probably better that we just keep this. <laughs> and the other one. <laughs> I Okay, so a few years ago, I, I, I spent a, lo- a decent amount of time along long stretches of Hadrian's Wall. And some of the wall's still there. A lot of it isn't, like... It's interesting because you'll find, like, pubs that are made using the stones of Hadrian's Wall. It's mm. kind of cool. It also was not nearly as tall or grand as I thought it was. About 15 it, feet. Yeah, maybe. And that was 15 feet in some places. Yeah, some places it's only, like, four or five feet high. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it also had a big ditch in front of it. And right. I, yeah, I mean, it was a little more but it was and... Scots can't jump either. That's just yeah, they can't jump. Science. And, l- and much like dogs, they can't look up. Yes. Yeah. You know why Scots can't jump? Because we're held down by the weight of our giant dicks. <laughs> anyway. The uh so the uh That's oh, I just lied so badly about myself. The um <laughs> And every other Scotsman. And every other Scotsman. Yeah. <laughs> I just know I this phrase comes into fire it. with oh. a third leg. Yeah. The um it's 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 funny though because you get a sense when you're in that part of Britain, in the north of England, at, on that stretch between Carlisle and Newcastle, they would go, "We'll rebuild this if we have to. <laughs> we'll put it back up. We'll keep them out. <laughs> Tear the bar down. Put it back. Put it back." Um, but it's yeah, it's it's fascinating because it is, in many ways. The story of Boudicca is often used to separate her from the the term barbarian. And yet, the things she and her army do to the Romans would be described, I think, by many people... As barbaric. As barbaric. Right. And often more barbaric than the barbarians. And she was... Like, it was a level of violence that even the general barbarians are like, whoa. whoa, whoa, Yeah. And it's it's very difficult to find any any historical work. I think that's actually a reason why more tribes didn't join her. I believe it. They looked at what they, she, she did to Camel of Dunham or, and to London and were just like, ooh, this... Yeah, even, even for... Like, we don't like these guys either, but that's, that's a bit a much. A I yeah. made the comparison last week to uh, the, the film uh, I Spit on Your Grave. And the yeah. more I think about it, yeah. the more I think that's super fucking accurate yeah and, and if you look at all these like popular culture of course they come a little bit later there's not a lot of contemporary images of Boudicca but she is always a warrior mm-hmm. there's almost always some sort of trappings of, of warfare she always has either a helmet 
or her spear. She's always pictured with a spear, especially in ones where she's like giving a speech. Everything from stained glass windows to the thorny cross statue to yeah, it's very, every media depiction of her now, like film and theatrical. TV, she's gutting people. Mm-hmm. Right, and she she holds her spear. She's banging the spear on the ground. It just it's very evocative, mm-hmm. and it's and again, I, like that's another thing. Like that was fairly common. Like to see women, like female warriors in the Britons, like mm-hmm. fighting alongside. Like that, and there were. There's really no age. If you were old enough to pick up a sword and you wanted to fight, you could fight. They if, were, if you could, and you could keep fighting until you couldn't carry that sword anymore. There were two areas where women fought in numbers similar to the men, and it really threw the Romans. One was in Britain, the other was on like the Scythian plains, mm-hmm. where like Ukraine, Belarusia are mm-hmm. now, and they also used women. And both times, it just threw the Romans for such an utter loop. So whenever they were fighting the Druids, they were so scared. That they were, and Suetonius describes his men as paralyzed with fear. That's from Suetonius' yep. writings. So those are from his letters. And I, I feel like he he probably wouldn't lie about that. <laughs> it's like, well, we saw a bunch of like screaming banshee women and we all pissed our pants. Yeah. But we won, so that was cool. And then we saw the Scots. <laughs> <laughs> the good thing about being a Roman soldier and fighting in these tunics is that when they. <laughs> when the Britons make us poop ourselves, it just falls it right just out. It just goes straight down. Perfect. We're no longer encumbered by the trappings of pants. <laughs> Take that, Persians. <laughs> this wasn't a very pants-heavy part of history, was it? No. Mm. It was probably at this point. It, it was, was for the Britons. Yeah, the Brits would have had. The yeah. Britons wore pants. Yeah. The, when the they wore pants. When the, they wore pants. When they wore pants. Or when anything. they wore pants. Yeah, the ones who didn't fight naked. <clears throat> but yeah, like I'm trying to go What's back. What's wrong with his sword? It was always, oh, that's not a sword. And it was always, well, it was, what if it was cold that day? <laughs> What's with his dagger? Yeah, oh, that's not a dagger. Now he's got a pocket knife. I was in the pool. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the, the Roman, especially like the Roman infantry would always laugh at like whatever, whatever army was like wearing pants. Like, look at these guys. Look how feminine they look. <laughs> like only our only our housewives would be wearing pants at a time like this. <laughs> like, they're pants. <laughs> what are we doing here, fellas? So yeah, it's it's a remarkable story, and the the modern spin on it, and and uh, also, you know, I mentioned this in the in the episode last time that the that kind of special challenge of the research of only having one side of the fucking story, and it's the wrong side. And it's not well, her side. But I, it is, for being the people who were ostensibly her enemy, the the most contemporary writings are not... They're not... They're, they're not as outside, unfair as you would expect. Outside yes. of, of yeah. Dio having that whole, like, ooh, girls thing going for him, it... I mean, Tacitus is definitely a more sympathetic yeah. uh, look at her. And was it... It was Tacitus that said that she just like took sick and died, right? Wasn't Dio said that she killed herself? Uh, herself? Suetonius, I think, said she took sick and died. Uh, I think Tacitus said that she I was it somewhere. It was poison, wasn't it? Actually, it might have been Tacitus who said that she uh, died of uh, Tacitus. Uh, indolence and melancholy. Herself. Dio says she fell sick and died. Oh, right. So okay. that's it's yeah. backwards of what I would have assumed. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's. Yeah. Neither did great with the whole women thing. And but that's also a sign of the times. The, taking, the glorious, right. yeah. taking the glorious, taking, 
Cassius heroic Di- death in battle away Ca- from a woman. Cassius Dio especially, because brand. you look at that entire, any woman in that he writes about, and there oh, aren't all, all that, that many, yeah. it's, it's, ooh, girls. It's, like, overtly disparaging. Yes. <laughs> um, it, and it's... So we can safely say that Dio is the incel writer of his era. Yeah. <laughs> the, the Nick Fuentes of the Roman Empire. God, oh, God. Hey, guys, don't you know that having sex with women is gay? I thought that was a joke. Nope, it's... I thought it was like a meme, and then I saw the video of it. Yeah. Like, he just says it. Yep. Yeah. Like, hey, fellas, is it gay to be straight? Like, I don't know. It's a very murky time. So, also, I realized this, that uh, that... Remember the... The, the the legate that refused to add his legion to Suetonius' forces. Mm-hmm. The one that told him to fuck off and die, basically. Uh, as soon as Su- uh, Suetonius won that battle, he fell on his sword out of shame. <laughs> yeah, took his own life. Yeah. Um, so that's It was a bit like of an... at camp. Yeah. Too. It, like, he saw that they won, and he was like, well, that's isn't good for me. Yeah. But, like, those are the two people that Dio describes as being, like, dying in the battle. Like, her and that guy. <laughs> yeah. Like, so, and then it's like, yeah, there were some losses sustained by the legionaries or whatever, but, yeah, it's, it's whatever. Also, this guy fucking killed himself. Nuts. Yeah. So, uh, to go back to the whole was she real, wasn't she, I, I think we need to take in the circumstantial evidence as well. The, the remains of the cities that were burned, that, that those historically happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that her husband was real. We know that yeah, for a fact. Yeah, a lot of, there's a lot of Roman records with the name Prasuticus to them. Yep. Yes. He paid his taxes. <laughs> yeah. Like contemporary from like the time he was alive. Right. Yeah. Like they have those tax records mm-hmm. exist, which is fucking nuts. Quite if, literally set in stone. <laughs> if this final battle against an army that big did not occur with the Romans winning, why would this other legionnaire that ran away to France kill himself? Well, I mean, the reality is we have evidence of 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 the, the city destructions. We have evidence of the conflicts. You know, we have evidence of her husband. We, we most have These been. conflicts happened. Most these city burnings know- happened. Maybe there wasn't a female leader who was wife of, you Pers- know, Pursuticus. Maybe there were quite a few. We knew women were in combat roles. We knew women were but in leadership roles. She was. There's the narrative. She would have been second in down. line for the Iceni, who you, we know did yeah. this. Yeah, and you know who I think it, we might compare it to. Remember back in February when they were in March, where it was the ghost of Kiev. Oh yeah. yeah. Of like, yeah. Mm-hmm. and they're thinking, oh, it wasn't an actual, but it became this like one fighter pilot that was representative of the entire defense mm-hmm. of of Ukraine. Yeah, I bought a pair of socks with the ghost of Kiev on it, just and it went to like. I don't remember. It was like some relief fund. The, the fuck, of this, yeah, of this one individual that becomes representative mm-hmm. of an entire class. Maybe that's what's going yeah. on here. I think it's a possibility. I think it's also super possible that she was an absolute unit of a human being who existed much as described. But, you know, but enough it, of this is true that just the narrative makes, still holds. It, Occam's razor states that she was real. Mm-hmm. Like, it just makes so much more sense. We know that the Iceni did this. We know that they were a large tribe. We know the reason they revolted was because they were done wrong. After their their tribal leader, which is weird to call the Iceni a tribe, because it really it's a bunch of people just kind of not even and, like living together. Like I hate to call them a tribe. It's I, think, like, I think the king, the term king, is fair. Yeah, and, and that's just it too. We've got a 
bunch of tribal peoples. And they would have followed her. Mm-hmm. Like, they, they, queens were a thing there. Well, every family They're needs a Vin Diesel. They're not going to unite without a central leader of some sort. Like I said, Occam's Razor just states that it's... Yeah. yeah. I'm on Team Boudicca here. I'm, but then again, I'm also still on Team Ghost of Kiev. Yeah. I'm, I'm on Team Boudicca, too. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to agree with it. If you're not on Team Boudicca, drop us an email. Yeah. Like I, I'm, I'm and tell curious. us why you're a boring person. <laughs> <laughs> and, and just simply tell us why you hate fun. But no, not just but Team no, Boudicca. Like I... If you want to be on Team TRR, Chris, where can people find us? <laughs> you can email us at trrpod at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at podcasttrr. Uh, follow us on Instagram at trrpod. You can find us on Facebook just searching Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. And you can join us in Valhalla where we will drink ale from Curved Horn and sing songs with Boudicca of her many victories. At www.patreon.com slash trrpod when the Valkyries welcome you home. Awesome. <laughs> uh, so next episode, we are going to be, again, going back to our roots. Um, we are, I'm sorry to say, covering a male subject, but we will actually follow Vicky's advice. Um, and we'll, we'll cover another lady very, very soon, I think. Uh, but next time, we're going to be covering the story of a buccaneer, an explorer, and an all-around... Renaissance man of the sailing world, a guy by the name of William Dampier. This one's going to be kind of interesting. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, so before we wrap up for the day, I want to once again thank our friend Keith Volhop for joining us from Thrifty Whiskey. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Keith, if people want to find Thrifty Whiskey, where can they do it? Uh, thriftywhiskey.com. They can go to thr- uh, YouTube and just search Thrifty Whiskey. Awesome. Uh, social media, just search Thrifty Whiskey on yep. Instagram. Yeah, all, of and all, our, all of our social media is at Thrifty Whiskey. Alternatively, if you turn the lights off in your bathroom and stare at the mirror, rub $2 bills together while holding a glass of whiskey. If you say Keith Whiskey three times, <laughs> Keith will show up and tell you how to save some money and enjoy some good brown. And that is whiskey with an E because the E jumped over the wall from Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and nobody okay, wanted just, it to uh, hide your elephants on the on the thrifty whiskey side. You just mentioned that you hit a pretty cool milestone earlier. Yes, we just uh, it, it's not going to be released until the beginning of the new year. But so we, will this episode. So we you may beat yep. it to us. Or beat uh, us to we it, we just did our one hundredth review. That's awesome. Nice. Man. Congratulations, Keith. That's, that's not great. our 100th episode. That's our 100th review. Fantastic. That's hard to believe. There's that much fucking cheap whiskey, and you guys are just really cracking the code. And on there's this still one. more to come. <laughs> We're just going to drink 100 different kinds of whiskey. <laughs> All right. So it's starting it's to get late. It's $30 or less. <laughs> right. It's starting to get late. We're going to wrap up because I got to jump in my chariot and head on home. And your skateboard. And uh, I'm not saying it's a big chariot. <laughs> so. Uh, if you don't mind, Chris, I'm going to take a few minutes stuck into my bathroom, paint myself blue, and uh, yeah, you got to follow us on Instagram to see that yeah. one. Get ourselves, uh, get ourselves ready for the next one. Take it easy, everybody. Hold fast. Bye now. <laughs>